a number of my former students have gone on to become teachers. It is a humbling and wonderful thing to see the incredible work they do guiding lives. I was recently invited to one of my former students' classrooms. She teaches fourth grade. She had a brilliantly crafted learning environment as I was observing all the cool things she had on the walls, all the timelines and all the information. There was one thing that really jumped out at me. She had a list of citizenship rules, five citizenship rules that every student was expected to have mastered before the end of the first week of school. They had to have these memorized, respect, be good, uh, do good, be kind, be courteous, and understand. Respect, do good, be kind, be courteous, understand. I said to my former student, the teacher, I said, that's a pretty cool list. Actually, one that very few grown-up people keep in our day and age. And she agreed. <clears throat> Don't you wish that everyone would live by those rules? Just tell me yes or no. Don't you wish that every single person would respect, do good, be kind, be courteous, and understand? Yes or no? Yes. Of course you do. You know what that means? That means that you wish that everybody lived according to Titus chapter 3. Seriously. You see, chapter 3 of the Bible book Titus is exactly where those five rules come from. My former student, a teacher now in a public school, went to Titus chapter 3 for her citizenship rules. And in all of her years of teaching, no one has ever disagreed with the calling to respect, do good, be kind, be courteous, and understand. Everyone needs this, including you and me. So let's go to the source. Open your Bible, Titus chapter 3. Go to Titus, right after the Timothy books, go to Titus chapter 3, these three verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2. Remind them, Paul says to Titus about the people on the island of Crete, and subsequently all of us, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind always showing gentleness to all people. If you look at your notes, you got a bulletin when you came in, look at the notes inside. You'll see we summarize this with the headline on the left-hand side, Christians are to be good citizens. First, we are to respect authority. This is so important that Paul uses a tense and a mood for the, for the verb remind that indicates Titus is to keep on reminding them. Obviously, this is not new information for these Christians who are learning with Titus on the island of Crete. And yet, it is hard enough to live this out that this info requires regular repetition. Titus needs to keep on reminding them. My parents are here this weekend. They brought down their new puppy. This is Abby. She is so cute. Oh, she's precious. I had a wonderful time this morning. I was actually late to church, so I was playing with her this morning. I couldn't leave. Um, how many of you have ever gotten a new puppy? You've gotten a puppy. Okay, raise your hands. Good. All right. What is the hardest part about a wonderful ZR? What's the hardest part of new, about a new puppy? Potty training. It's all the pee in your house, right? Just everywhere, all the time. Tell me, do you sit the dog down and instruct the dog and say, "Look, oh, good boy. This is how we do it. This is how we do it." How do you, do you, out, take the dog outside, show them one time. And then they got it. You just walk away. You instructed them. They got it. Is that how it works? No. no, it is not at all how it works. You've got to keep reminding. You have to keep training. He'll get it. He'll eventually get it. But it takes hard work to overcome his natural tendency to mark everything, right? In the same way, we must keep on reminding each other to practice these disciplines that train us in Christian living. Otherwise, you know what happens? Otherwise, our churches and our homes will reek with the odor of our natural tendencies. Notice that Paul says to be submissive and obey. He also delineates rulers and authorities. Submissive is the Greek word hupotasso. 
Um, it, it, it indicates a willful acquiescence, a willful choice. I, I think Catholic scholar Seslaw uh, Speak gives the best summary I've ever read of hupotasso. Here's what he says. He says, uh, it may be said that this verb, hupotasso, is peculiar to the language of the New Testament and that submission, which should not be confused with obedience, is a major virtue in the Christian writings. Now, listen carefully. It's evident in all the various texts we have that use hupotasso that it doesn't have the same range of meaning in, in every situation. A man's submission to his king is not the same in kind as a child's submission to her parents. But there are three things, there are three things that are always part of hupotasso. Every relationship, every situation, every time in your Bible you see submit or submissive, hupotasso involves these three things always reverence, self-offering, and humility. Reverence, self-offering, humility. Got it? Self-offering. Biblical submission is never, ever, ever demanded. It is always a willful choice. The believer chooses to revere authority knowing that ultimately we are submitting to God's will, not just to humans. By the way, the Christian also remembers that God says he uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. That's why he keeps reminding us to obey. We're to humbly obey laws even of our sometimes foolish human governments. And that means all kinds of authorities. Look at your text. Paul specifically delineates between Roman rulers, that's people like Caesar and, and senators, and local authorities. The Christian is to submit and obey to each and all. Now, I know, I know what you're probably thinking. In that, um, in that Peter Lorre voice that you like to use, you're saying, wait. Wasn't this an impressive Roman government? Why would Paul tell people to respect a persecuting authority? <laughs> Good question. Thank you. It is even worse than you think. It's an excellent question. Let me make it even worse, okay? The Roman system with Crete, and by the way, this was true of almost all of the eastern provinces, it included a new procurator every single year. What that means is the system was rife with corruption and abuse opportunities. Here's what would happen. Interest groups would, would give gifts to the incoming Roman governor, the procurator, in order to secure the favor of the government who would look the other way while they were corrupt. Now, Roman governors were never too blatant with their corruption because if you were too obvious with your corruption, you could be recalled to Rome in disgrace and you could lose your fortune. By the way, that famously happened to a guy named Pontius Pilate, of whom you may have heard. Um, but the fact is, Christians were and would be oppressed, and it's worse, the islanders who originally received this letter were also living under a government of corruption. Speaking of persecution, technically the Roman rulers protected the Christian faith at this time, at the time that Titus was penned. The Jews who rejected Jesus were actually the main troublers of Christians. These non-Christian Jews, especially on Crete and other places, they would bribe the incoming procurator, give gifts to them, so the governor would look the other way while they made life very, very hard for the Christians. So all that has to be considered when the apostle says to respect authorities. He's saying that we do so in the face of persecution and corruption. Now that doesn't mean that Christians should violate their consciences. Remember Daniel and his pals in Babylon? They, they were willing to die instead of accepting the government's mandates that they violate Scripture. Uh, listen to Daniel chapter 3. This is, this is the answer the Hebrews gave when they were commanded to practice idolatry. They said, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
We read similar stories all throughout the Bible. Martin Luther probably summarized all of the various scriptures best. Uh, I like this quote so much I put it in your notes. Building on St. Augustine's analysis, um, Luther said this, God has ordained two governments, the spiritual by which the Holy Spirit under Christ makes Christians and the secular which extends no farther than to life and property and what is external upon the earth. We are to be subject to governmental power and do what it bids as long as it does not bind our conscience but legislates only concerning outward matters. But if it invades the spiritual domain and constrains the conscience over which God alone must preside and rule, we should not obey it at all, but rather lose our necks. Temporal authority and government extend no farther than to matters which are external and corporeal. Thus Christians, close quote, thus Christians are not to violate Scripture, and we can indeed work to change you know this is true. Luther's right. We can work to change human governments when those rulers are exceeding their authority. Revolution is, is appropriate when they're exceeding their authority. And yet, when the human government is within the rule of law and is not commanding God's people to violate the higher law, we must submit and obey, even when they keep raising your taxes. Right? Further. Luther rightly taught the biblical idea that the worst a human ruler can do is send you to heaven sooner. That's the worst they can do. I don't mean to make light of that. I know it's scary and painful to die. But actually, think about it. It's an awesome proposition. Eternity with God, no sin, this short span of life, this painful life gone. That's not a bad trade, okay? That's why Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, ends this way. If you know the tune... Sing it with me. Come on, all together. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Everybody, amen. Hey, that was nice. Respect authority. Second aspect of good citizenship can be found atop the right side of our notes. Look there. Be ready for good works. The word we translate ready uh, is the Greek hetoimos. It's a term that uh, is a Boy Scout term. It, it means you are completely prepared. Here's the cool part. Hetoimos is only used three, time, three ways in the New Testament. Only in three situations is it used. Um, be ready for good works, Titus chapter 3. Be ready to share the gospel, uh, Peter and Paul both use hetoimos for that. And be ready for Jesus' return in Matthew chapter 24. There are lots of words for preparation in the Greek New Testament. But hetoimos is only used of these three things. I think it's possible because it seems like these three ideas are interconnected. Why do good? Why do you do good anyway? Because Jesus is going to return. And he told us to do good while he was gone. What is the highest good you can do? Sharing the truth that a person can become God's forever child by trusting Messiah Jesus. The, the use of this word hetoimos deepens Paul's message here. We must be completely prepared to do good, the highest good, in light of Jesus' return. John Wesley, who was a pretty talented Greek scholar, he was so struck by hetoimos that he wrote the quote I placed in your notes. Wesley said this, Do all the good you can, in all the ways you can, to all the souls you can, in every place you can, at all the times you can, with all the zeal you can, as long as ever you can. Amen? However, while I was working on this message, I received a note from a member of our pulpit team. 
He was, he was praying through my outline, and he sent this message to me. He said this. He said, Wayne, I don't think you can just quote Wesley and have people understand your meaning. In all sincerity, with our absurd yet believed no absolutes world today, folks may not know how to define good. Do people even know what constitutes a good work anymore? Close quote. It's very possible that he's right. If, if you're right now thinking, I'm... I'm not sure what makes a good work. That's okay. As he said, in this culture, that's perfectly understandable. So here's what I did. I took a little time, and I put together a brief summary of Scripture regarding doing good. I reduced it to, distilled it down to four themes. This is incredibly simplistic, but I think it may be helpful. You want to know what's good? What, what is good to do according to the Bible? Four things. Number one, know how to share the good news of Jesus about salvation in him and do it. Number two, help others with what they need. Note, what they need is not always the same as what they want. Parents especially, please remember that. Number three, do no harm. God said that long before Hippocrates ever did. Do no harm. Number four, give yourself, your money, your time, your, your talent, your things for eternal things. Look at that list. You want to know what a good work is? Know how to share the good news of salvation in Jesus and do it. Help others with what they need. Do no harm and give yourself for eternal things. For eternal things. Now, go do that. Okay? Do all the good you can in all the ways you can. Do all the souls you can in every place you can. At all the times you can with all the zeal you can as long as ever you can. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Our third mark of citizenship is to be peaceable. That's that's. That's my summary of Titus 3, 2's, uh, to slander no one, to avoid fighting. This is a recurring theme in the Bible. We, we're not to be pugnacious. We're, we're also to be very careful. We don't talk about other people, gossip, or even worse, lie about them, slander. And yet, we have a hard time with this. We have a hard time living according to Titus 3, 2, because lack of peace is a particular failing of this age. Possibly the number one trait of our time is rage. Rage is used to motivate people. Rage is used to justify... Rage is even used to, to sell products in our time. Peggy Noonan wrote a recent column titled, Rage is All the Rage. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating piece because she's addressing herself and people like her who are in the media. And, and talking to her group, she says this... By indulging their and their audience's rage, they spread the rage. Rage and sanctimony always spread like a virus and become stronger with each iteration. That is very true. That is a very good insight. She goes on. And it's no good, it's no excuse to say so-and-so did it first. He lowered the tone. It's his fault. Your response to his low character is to lower your own character? He talks bad, so you do? You let him destabilize you like this? You're making a testimony to his power. Close quote. Rather than let raging people destabilize us, which is our norm, let's follow the advice of David. David, Psalm 37, uh, he says this. I'd like you to read it with me. You read responsively the, uh, the underlined text, okay? Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. For they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers 
will be destroyed. But those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land, the great promise of the Old Testament. It is hard in this day to be peaceable, but David shows us the way. Put your hope in the Lord alone. Paul fleshes this out further. Romans chapter 12. I'd like you to read verse 21 with me. Let's read 21 all together. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Amen. Of course, avoiding slander and quarrels doesn't mean that we flee spirited debate. We still argue. Arguments are great. We can even still protest. It just means that when we argue and we protest, we do so peaceably. We eschew rage because we hope in the Lord and we overcome evil with good, especially the evil in our own hearts. Our next citizenship responsibility is to be courteous. Uh, that's my one-word distillation of Paul's be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. There was a time when this idea of courtesy had deeply penetrated Western societies. Don't misunderstand. There was never any great, perfect, good old day. Since Genesis chapter 3, people have always been sinful wretches. But, but because of Christianity... The, Western cultures over the last 500 years developed a common desire to be gentlemen and gentlewomen. That's why our forefathers made up the terms gentleman and gentlewoman. They were trying to capture Titus chapter 3 lived out. There was a courtesy that was expected toward all people. Amazingly, even non-Christians accepted this and illogically but wonderfully held all of society to a courteous standard. For example, I want to show you a video, very, very old video. This is New York City, circa 1900. New York City, take a look. This is New York City, 1900. I want you to notice the women. and the, Do you notice how they're dressed? And then look at how those sidewalks are crowded. But do you see how people make room for each other? And how are the women treated? Men tipping their hat moving aside on the sidewalk to make room. When people are talking, they walk around them. Folks, when this was made, New York City had 4 million inhabitants. You think your place is getting crowded. 4 million people, and yet, look at that bustle. What an uncomfortable way to dress. That's amazing. Um, 4 million people, and yet they were courteous. Gentlemen were gentlemen, right? I want you to compare that with another video. This is an undercover video taken last year. It's on the exact same streets. There's a man who is walking, and in his hat is a hidden camera, and behind him is his friend who is a woman. Let's see how she's treated now, 100-something years later, in the, same, in the same area. stop the video there before he gets taken out. All right. Was there a little contrast there? Quite a difference, wasn't it? You see, courtesy and self-sacrifice have been replaced with personal desire 
and rudeness. One of our seminary students offered a great insight to me as to why things have degraded this way. I think this is spot on. Here's why the change that we've seen has happened, or at least one of the many reasons why. Uh, Tyler Wilson wrote me, said this, Wayne, in the war that ended peace, the road to 1914, and he says it's the best book he's read on the cause of World War I. He and I are history nerds together. He said, a German military authority named Wilhelm Black observed this, a quote from Wilhelm Black, the steadily improving standards of living tend to increase the instinct of self-preservation and diminish the spirit of self-sacrifice, close quote. Please listen to this. All of you who have been brainwashed with the nonsense of Maslow's hierarchy, which is not even validatable and ridiculously inaccurate, listen. It is increase in standards of living that increases personal selfishness, self-preservation, and diminishes the spirit of self-sacrifice. I know at first that sounds backwards to you, but Herr Black is correct. Because we don't have to scrabble for food, courtesy is a very hard road to hoe in our age. We have the leisure time to be selfish. We don't have to cooperate. However, courteousness can make a comeback, and it doesn't mean you have to become poor to do so. Let me tell you about Crete, where this letter was originally written. The streets of Crete were much worse than the streets of modern New York City. I'm not exaggerating. We know from many literary sources a female could not go out alone on the streets of any Greek city. Now, this wasn't always true in the West in Rome, but it was in all of the Greek cities. No woman in the first century could go out alone unless she wanted to be raped. She had to have an escort to protect her. That was the state of life then. And yet, do you know what happened? Within two generations after this letter was written, within two generations where people lived out and were good citizens and shared the good news of Jesus Christ and lived as different people, that whole culture changed. We know, we have many historical records that the whole culture turned upside down. Men began to make way for females on the street, an unheard of thing in the Greco world. Women were so safe they could go out at night 50 years after this was written and expect absolutely no problem anywhere on the whole island of Crete. The same thing can happen today, and it must begin with us. Not somebody else, us. We must be courteous. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Now, the next verses walk us through an explanation of why. Why we're good citizens. Read verses 3 through 7. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, Enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, He poured out this Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been made justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Christian citizenship is explained here, and it's all tied to understanding. It's all tied to understanding. There are three things that make us into healthy citizens of our society. First, we understand our past default setting. Just, just consider Paul's amazing list of adjectives. Look at verse 3. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions, pledged, living in malice, envy, hateful, detesting one another. 
This reminder is necessary because Christians, especially people who have been believers for a while, they can develop inaccurate memories. We tend to see our past sins as all, not all that bad, right? We, we think of them as kind of cute even. We gloss over our real ugliness and insecurity and discourtesy. We re- Here's what we do. We remember ourselves as the lead in a heroic drama instead of the tragic characters we actually were. This tendency is especially marked in those who come to faith in Christ early in life. Do not misunderstand. It is wonderful to become a Christian while you're young. It's great. But it can make us blind to just how lost we were and how badly we needed salvation. Paul brings this up because God wants us to remember just how nasty we really were. We cannot be courteous and and peaceable toward foolish and wayward people unless we recognize that we were foolish and wayward as well. My sweetheart and I were one time boarding a ski lift, but it took forever because the guys in front of us kept shutting down the lift. These idiots were high. They kept laughing, they kept stumbling, falling over, stopping the lift. Then once they finally boarded, they started looking back at us and making lecherous comments about my beautiful wife. Peaceable and courteous were very far from my thinking at that moment. (laughs) But you know what Jana did? She placed her her hand on my arm and she said, honey, let's pray for them. And I bowed my head. She prayed because I was too angry to pray. And she prayed, God, it is so amazing that you love us. I cannot believe that you love Wayne and me when we were just as wretched as that. We were worse than that in our flesh. And then she asked God to reach into their lives with the good news of Jesus. By the time we got to end that lift, I I was unable to be peaceable because God used my sweetheart to remind me that I was just as horrifically needy without Christ. When we understand our default setting, the biblical truth that we were dead in our sins, it helps us be much more gracious. It also helps us be more evangelistic. My, my old mentor, Dr. Sumner Wendt, was an amazing evangelist, and I'm convinced that the reason he was such a great evangelist was this one trait. Sumner never got over his justification. He, ne- he never got over the fact that this undeserving kid named Sumner Wimp was actually saved by the grace of God. And it was something he drilled into my head that I deserve nothing, that everything comes to me by God's amazing grace, that I should always remember my default setting was evil. Remembering that, I can be a better citizen of earth and of heaven because I'm grateful and astounded over the mercies of God. We are good citizens because we grasp the horror of our default setting in sin. Secondly, we understand, second understanding, our present justification. Look look at the incredibly powerful, succinct theology, verses 4 through 7. Right Right away in verse 4, we learn that our right standing before God, our justification is grounded in God's loving kindness. Philanthropia is a Greek term uh, in verse 4. My Bible renders it kindness. What English word does that sound like? Philanthropia. What does it sound like? What English word? Philanthropy, right. We get our word philanthropy straight from here. By the way, the word was made up by a playwright you may have heard of named Aristophanes, Golden Age of Greece. Uh, It describes a ruler, and when Aristophanes first used it, he set the tone for it. It's a ruler who is so benevolent, so gracious, that he gives gifts to all of his people who are in need. He gives gifts to them. And what a gift the king of heaven bestows on Christians. Look, God's philanthropy justifies us. Verse 7 describes our justification by using a participle and... Here's what that means. That means we are declared right before God presently and for all eternity to come. 
That, that's what the way it's written in the Greek means. We are declared righteous, justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, now and for all time to come. It's God's philanthropy alone that makes us right. All God's people said, can I get a hallelujah? Our salvation is not due in any way to our righteousness. Look at verse 5. You see verse 5? Not by works of righteousness that we had done. You and I must understand this. Our justification is not based in any way on our works. We do not support our own position before God. Why is that so important? That we don't support our own position before God. Why is that so important? Because then we can't lose it. Let me show you. Daniel, come on up here. You're big and strong. Come here. Come here. I'm going to ask Daniel to volunteer. Come on up on the stage. All right, big, strong Daniel is going to pick me up. Pick me up. Just pick me up and hold me. There we go. All right. Now, what happens? This is no problem for him. What happens when Daniel gets tired, though? And his muscles are already starting to wiggle a little. What happens when he has to go to the bathroom and scratch his nose? Go ahead, drop me. What happens? I fall down, right? Right? And that will inevitably happen to him. Can you give my friend a hand, Daniel? Great job. That was great. Give him a hand. That is the inevitable result when you try to lift yourself off this earth. If you try to raise yourself up through human means, you will quickly collapse because of human frailty. But you trust God alone and you cannot fail. He doesn't ever grow weak or weary. He has you in his hand and you can never, ever fall out. Now, that begs a question about this context, all right? Why would justification by God's grace alone, which is clearly what this passage says, why would that make someone a good citizen? This is all about citizenship. Why say that here? Doctors Lee and Griffin explain. I really think they nailed it here. The biblical fact that people cannot earn their salvation strikes at the very heart of human pride and thus denies people the opportunity of exalting themselves. Think about citizenship. Why are the people in your culture such bad citizens? It's because they feel entitled. It's because they're convinced that they deserve. They're convinced that their hard work or their victimization or an unholy alliance of the two, which is fairly popular, it has made them more deserving, more important, or better than other people. This is the opposite of humility. All bad citizenship lacks humility. God's grace makes for great citizens precisely because it demands humility. We recognize that we deserve nothing, but God provides everything. And I do mean everything. Look quickly at what Paul tells us about our justification by God's grace. It includes regeneration. You see that in verse 5? It's a fancy theological term. It means, it means born again or, or made new. If you trust Jesus, you are made new by God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the classic statement about this. It's a verse everybody should memorize. Every human should memorize 2 Corinthians 5.17. Let's all say it together, line by line, all together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well done. We are made new by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit, the third person of the triune God, actually engages with us. He indwells us. He lives with us, washing us with renewal. I still remember the fun of taking bubble baths with my brother when we were very little. My, my mommy would, um, she would, she would draw a nice warm bath and put in a gazillion bubbles, and we would go in there and play and play and make forts and have fun. Mr. Bubble, Bubble, Bubble. And, it, and then mom would come in, and she would grab a washcloth, and she would scrub our very, very filthy faces from playing in the creek all day. It was, it was so refreshing. It was so safe. 
I hated getting out of the bathtub. Just hated it. In fact, mom wouldn't make us get out until the water got cool. So I would wait until she went in the other room. Dad would help me in this. He would play along. He would say, Alan, he'd call her, and I would add more hot water to keep the bath going. Because after bath time was done, then we had to go to bed. I hated going to bed. Many, many spankings because I hated going to bed. With God's spirit, look at this, the washing, the regeneration, the bubble bath never ends. <laughs> the bubble bath never ends. He is always washing us. He is always renewing our souls. Of course, all of this only occurs for those who accept the offer of grace through Jesus, right? He chose to die on the cross. He conquered sin and death because God loves you. If you believe on him, your past default is erased, and you can stand justified and be cleansed in God's family. We've got one more point to cover. There's one more point to cover. We're going to stop right here. Let's stop right here, and let's respond to, to Jesus' grace. Pray with, pray, pray with me, please. Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we respond to grace, to the washing of the Holy Spirit, to your renewal as part of every day in our lives. Thank you that the bath doesn't end. And Lord... I pray for anybody who's studying with me that doesn't trust Jesus as Savior, that you will change that right now. Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin, and you are a sinner. You are. You cannot work your own way to God. You're not nearly as strong as Daniel is who picked me up, not spiritually. And you will fail. But God has made a way for you where Jesus holds you up if you will trust him. And he pays for all your sin. In fact, he rose from the dead after he died paying for your sin as a sacrifice. And you, if you trust him, follow him in everlasting life. Trust him right now. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Raise your hand and look up at me. Let me rejoice with you. Good. Amen. Father, I pray for all of us that we will rejoice in our salvation and live as citizens who are different because we understand. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Remember the, the teacher's citizenship rules? Remember them? Respect, do good, be kind, be courteous, understand. Titus chapter 3 teaches us how to respect and do good and be kind and be courteous. It also shows why we're good citizens, because we understand. We understand our past default setting before we trust Jesus. We understand our present and ongoing justification by grace, and we understand our future glory. Uh, chapter se Verse 7 ends this way. We may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. The, the Greek word we translate hope here, uh, el peace, it's not, it's not like a modern wishful thinking, oh, I hope maybe someday. It, this is a word that signifies a confident assurance of something that is certain. That's why I think the New American Standard translation is better here. Um, it says that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The certainty of our future glory changes how we live today. A few generations ago, Dr. Ironside wrote this. He said, every believer has eternal life now as a present possession. Nevertheless, we're exhorted to lay hold on eternal life as a matter of practical experience. And by and by, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall enter into life eternal in all its fullness. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team put it this way. Great letter he wrote me this week. Look at this part of it. 
He said, Paul in verse 7 puts the capstone on his appeal to live as good citizens by reminding us that when Christ returns, we will be heirs and co-stewards of his future kingdom. The point seems to be that we should start to live now as we will then. Close quote. It is ironic, but it's true. We are great citizens now precisely because we know this isn't our eternal home. Frankly, I have been horrified over the past few years to see what rotten citizens so many Christians are. And I have become convinced that Titus 3.7 captures the reason why we are bad neighbors in this world. Here's why. It's because we have stopped focusing on the world to come. Think of it like this. Think of it like this. When I go to speak at a camp uh, or I go on a mission trip, I am so nice to everyone there precisely because that isn't my home. And it's not, it's not that those people in that place don't matter to me. They do very, very much. But I can be invariably nice knowing that no conflict there is worth arguing over. I'm only going to be there for a few days, and I want to bless the people more than I want to argue with them. God is calling me to be all the time, every day, who I am on a retreat at my favorite camp. Therefore, I suggest that each of us think of this life, your life, as a, as a camping trip, as a, as a mission trip, because we are sojourners. We, we are visitors here with a much better home waiting for us after this journey. Because of that, we can be great citizens here. What do we do? We, we respect, we do good, we're kind, we're courteous because we understand. That's how you act on a mission trip. It's how you fulfill the work. It's how you represent your home country well. 